So if you have your Bibles, open them up. We are ready for um, Ruth chapter 3 and 4. What I think I decided to do tonight was we're going to just do all four chapters. I'm not going to comment uh, much on the first two, but to catch it in context, I'm going to read through the first two and then pick up where we left off last week. We covered one and two verse by verse last week. We'll cover three and four that way tonight, but we're going to kind of catch it in um, context. And so the Again, the story of Ruth is is the the story of a redeemer. And in Deuteronomy 25, you can actually start there if you want. Look at w- with me, if you will, Deuteronomy 25, um, beginning in verse number 5. We get the um, law, it's called the Leverite, or they call it in Israel the Leverite, um, law of the Leverite. And so basically what that is, is um, marriage duty of a surviving brother. And so... Um, God laid out this rule in Deuteronomy that, 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 that Israel lived by, and that comes to, to play big time in the book of Ruth. And it says in verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the, da- of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband before a husband's brother to her, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of the of his dead brother that his name may be may not be blotted out of Israel but if a man does not want to take his brother's wife and let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him but if he stands firm and says i do not want to take her then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders remove his sandal from his foot spit in his face and answer and say so it shall be done to the man who will who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in israel the house of him who had his sandal removed and his face spit on so you know um it's kind of a a a strange little rule in israel but um, it was intended that way. One of the purposes of it, um, the first just practical purpose of it was to so that the family name would go on and then that, that brother's name would go on and that brother's legacy would go on. So if a brother got married and he didn't have any kids and he died, the next one in line would take that that girl and have to marry her and have a child with her. One of the things it would do is it would create a, a real intimacy in in families and when your older brother came home and said, hey, I met a girl, man, I think I'm going to marry her. Before that happened, you'd be like, oh, hold on a minute, let me meet her, you know, let, let me check this out and make sure that, you know, and you would be involved in those decisions and as a family, because if you realize if something happened to your brother, that's going to be your wife. And so we've seen this. Do you remember the story in Genesis 28 um, where this happens? And um, in Genesis 28, Judah and this this the story in one of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the brothers, Judah, he has a son and his son has a wife and, um, and he dies and the next brother takes her as a bride, but he doesn't want to really fulfill his vow. So, but he sleeps with her. And then the Bible says that he emits on the ground and then God, God got angry with him and God killed him. And so then there was a third boy in the family and, and, and Judah's like, you know, this woman, I don't know, this widow maker, she's already killed two of my sons. And he was a little reluctant to give, give her the third son, but he told her, wait, 
And, and when, and the youngest son was too young at the time. And when he becomes of age, I'll give him to you as a husband. So she went and she put on her widow's garb and, and she waited. And then she found out that the youngest son, Judah's youngest son had come of age of marrying age. And Judah wasn't giving her to him as a, as a husband. And so you guys remember the story in Genesis 38, right? She goes to the, the side of the road and she puts on the, the wardrobe of a, of a harlot and here comes Judah on a business trip passing by that area and he he propositions her and they make a deal for um, sexual favors and um, he doesn't have, um, the, the deal is for a goat. So he's going to pay her a goat for her services, but he doesn't have the goat with him in the flock. So she says, give me something as a surety, as a pledge that you'll pay what, what we've vowed. And so what did he give her? The first wedding ring. The story of how wedding rings come into, come into play. So he gives her a signet ring and his staff. She says, give me your ring and your staff. And then when you bring the goat, I'll give them back. And so he gives her his ring and his staff. And um, he, then he leaves and, and he, he tells one of his servants when he gets to the herd to take a goat and go find the woman by, by the road and, and get my signet and my staff back and give her this goat. And so the servant goes back and she's not there. He can't find her. He asks around. He says, where's the prostitute that hangs out in this area? And the guy said, there's no prostitute that hangs out in this area. And there never has been. And so he, he can't find her. So he goes back to, to Judah and he says, she wasn't there. I couldn't find her. And Judah says, oh, well, what are we going to do? You know, and, and then um, they go back. Life goes back to normal. And about um, six months later, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant. And he's excited because, you know, that that's he's off the hook. He didn't want to give his youngest son to her anyways. And so he feels like, oh, yeah, he's vindicated. He's off the hook. So what is what does Judah say to, about her? Kill her. That's what they always say, right? Oh, this is good. Kill her. You know, we get well, she capital punishment. She's playing the harlot. And so she comes to Judah and she says, um, I'm pregnant by the man who owns this ring and this staff. And he says, no. Oh. And he says, you've been more honorable than I have. And so they, they have a child, Judah and Tamar. And, and the, the amazing thing about that story is that there's four women that are listed, not counting Mary, four women that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And one of them is Tamar, this woman in this story from the tribe of Judah. And then that line from that, that baby that's born from Judah and Tamar down the line brings us to the story of um, it's in this it'll be end up in the same succession of um, Ruth and Boaz and Ruth and Boaz are two generations away from three generations away from King David from the tribe of Judah that obviously Jesus comes from the line of and the tribe of Judah from the line of David and so um, the books we were in Ruth and um, We've been to, Ruth is the ninth book in the Old Testament that we've been walking through. And what's interesting is the, the, the first nine books, kind of where it brings us to, they, they tell a little story. In the book of Genesis, it means beginnings. Exodus is a story of redemption. Leviticus is the rules for worship. Numbers is the rules for how we, we practically walk or live. Um, Deuteronomy is... is um, a book of obedience and, and being obedient to God's word and, and all the rules. And in Deuteronomy, we find the list that if you, then God will bless you. And if you, if you 
then God will curse you and if you and if you and if you and if you. And then um, in Joshua, we see victory. In Judges, we see judgment or, or kind of the, the failure of disobedience and judgment that comes. And then um, in Samuel, which we'll study next, is the establishing of God's kingdom in Israel. And then Ruth, that's kind of sandwiched in the middle there, book number eight, is uh, redemption and a redeemer. And so we get um, kind of this, this even in the, the way God laid out the first nine books of the Bible, we see the beginnings, redemption, worship, walk, obedience, victory, failure, redemption, and then the establishing of God's kingdom in Israel. We have um, two books in the Bible that are uh, go by the name of, of women. So Ruth is one. We're studying it now. What's the other one? Esther, Ruth and Esther. What's interesting is that Ruth is a story of a Gentile woman in um, Hebrew land. And the story of Esther is a Hebrew woman in Gentile land. And Esther is an amazing story too. And Esther speaks to, of God through the time where Israel was dispersed all over and that God was going to take care of them in Gentile lands and bring them back. And then Ruth is a picture of a Gentile woman in a Hebrew land that's going to have a, a Hebrew um, redeemer. And this, this Hebrew redeemer is going to have a Gentile bride. Does that sound familiar? We have a, a husband, you and I, I mean, he's a Hebrew, and he has a Gentile bride, which is you and I, our husband Jesus, who, who takes Gentile bride, the church. And so this is a picture of, of God's plan of redemption for his Gentile bride. And we see, we see Gentile brides um, as a picture of the church. Lots of times in the Bible, we, we have other examples of this same thing where, where we have a Gentile bride. And so this story of, of redemption that, that, that Boaz is going to redeem this field in order to get the bride. And Jesus is our redeemer who, who redeemed this world in order to claim his Gentile bride. And then um, the names, we'll get to those um, in a minute. Let's, again, let's kind of read through this beginning in verse number one. So we, we talked about him last week, but the story is of, um, actually, I'll, I'll read it so we'll catch it. It says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Epaphroditus of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So Jesus was technically born in Epaphroditus, Epaphrodites of Bethlehem. We know Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem, but Epaphrodites is a part of Bethlehem. It's an area in Bethlehem where, where Jesus was specifically from. And again, it, why is that? Because this story right here begins in this place of Bethlehem that Jesus's great, 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 like lots of great, 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 great grandfather, grandmother come from this area. King David is born and from this area. And eventually, um, according to prophecy, Joseph is from this area and goes back to this area where he's, where Jesus is born in this Bethlehem of Epaphroditus. And so um, the names, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, it, God always, not God, the, the people of the Old Testament, their names meant something. Like they, the, the names that God either were prophetic or that God gave them a name or, or you know, something. But the fathers and the mothers would name the children um, 
that would mean something about the child. Like um, when Jacob and Esau were born, um, Esau came out what? Red and hairy, so they called him. He had a you know hairy, pretty practical, right? How'd you like to be called hairy? There's hairy. So and then Esau or Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel as they were coming out of the womb. They were fighting to see who was going to be the firstborn in the womb. And when when they came out, they called Jacob. The name Jacob means heel catcher, surplanter, dirty rotten scoundrel. Yeah, Jacob is is not necessarily a lovely name um biblically but those names mean something so again just like um the this the names in this story they also tell a story so abimelech is a guy and his name means my god is king and he has a wife and her name is naomi and naomi means pleasant and then they have a son malon two sons malon and, and chilion and their names are kind of weird and why they named them this way i don't know but malon's name means sickly and chilion's name puny or or some or, or weakling or whatever but maybe when when malon was born and they died young so maybe it makes sense that when they came out they were sickly maybe he was sickly maybe he was sickly from the time he was born maybe he came out with some kind of sickness and was just sickly looking and then his brother was born and this poor guy you know, think oh my first son was sickly this next one's going to be good but no chilion came out and and he was puny and not any better than his brother Sickly, and so they called him Puny. And then um, Bethlehem means house of bread. Um, the Epaphroditus in Bethlehem, the, the word Epaphroditus means fruit. And then um, and Jesus comes from the house of bread, fruit from the house of bread, uh, Jesus. Moab, um, the word Moab, it, I don't know that it necessarily has a meaning in itself, Moab, but God said of Moab that Moab was his wash pot. In other words, that Moab was his garbage or his toilet. Some have, have translated that idea that, that, that Moab means toilet or garbage or trash pot. And then Judah, the tribe of Judah, the word Judah means praise. So here you have Abimelech who says, my God is king. His wife is pleasant. He, he lives in the house of bread and, um, in, and he's from the tribe of praise and he Times are rough in the house of God, and so he decides to to leave that and go down to the toilet, down to Moab, or down to the the garbage can, so to speak. And again, the the original story starts with Abimelech, whose name means "My God is King." Life's not terrible. His wife's name was Pleasant. He, you know, and he he leaves for lack of faith because Bethlehem is having. Um, a drought and a famine and he goes down to Vegas so to speak he goes down to a place that's a city you know that that's not a good city the it also tells us that that it came to pass in verse one right in the days of what when the judges ruled so we just came out of the book of judges right and we know the condition that that Israel was in in these days and it wasn't good the last verse of the book of judges says that um, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes and so we have in this context this this gem here which is this story of redemption that is Ruth and so Abimelech in a lack of faith he leaves the house of God and he goes down to a pagan place and it's going to cost him it's going to cost him everything and it's such a mistake you know king david said i would rather dwell in the house of i would rather dwell i would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my lord than dwell in the tents with the wicked 
And so the idea is that David would rather be a servant, be lowly, do nothing, um, be a bathroom cleaner in God's house than go and dwell in palaces with the wicked. And so unfortunately, Abimelech didn't have that heart of King David and he left and he, he bailed as a, as a lack of faith. They go down to Moab and then in Moab, things just go south. So now I'm just going to read to you guys without much comment. Um, you can follow along. We'll catch the story and we'll, we'll slow down about chapter three. It says, now it came to pass in those days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem of Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Epaphrodites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives, the women of Moab, and the name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. I, I heard this thing that, and I always tease when I when I read the word Orpha, I read it Oprah because the P and the R are just in the wrong place and would read Oprah. I actually heard somebody say that Oprah Winfrey's um, she comes from a Christian home, and that her her real name, official name, when she was born was Orpa. And then it got changed. The P and the H got changed to um, Oprah because Oprah is kind of a you know unique name, and and it would make sense that the you know that she had a Christian upbringing that her name was a Bible name. So someone picked her name out of the Bible, and if it was going to pick a name out of the out of this story, I don't think I'd pick Orpah. I think I would pick her sister Ruth. But anyways, that's possibility. Too bad Oprah Winfrey didn't stick to her Christian heritage and all the new age nonsense that she pushes now. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So bread comes back to the house of bread. And therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her. And they went on the way and returned to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with and with the dead and with me, then the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your, your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having a husband? No, my daughter, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so, you know, in essence, I, I said last week that um, that she was, you know, really not in a position to be giving advice and, and that being true because she, you know, basically she's more concerned with, you know, their flesh and their being happy in the flesh and going back to serve these pagan gods back in Moab as opposed to serving the living God and trusting that, that, that they're them coming back with her to Israel and meeting and serving the living God, that God 
won't and, and is not able to do something for these women in the future. And she just had a lack of faith. And obviously, 10 years of living in Moab and 10 years of, of not being with God's people, she's, she's backslidden. She's, she's probably had a hard life. We're going to see in a minute where when Ruth gets back, um, I'm sorry, when Naomi gets back, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, that's Naomi? That 10 years was hard on her, you know, like, because it, it was, you know, that, that countenance from, you know, that rough, that hard living that no doubt she would have lived. And she's giving these girls this, this, this bad advice not to trust in the Lord. You know, one of the themes that we've been talking about through this series was, you know, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. And so, um, you know, the, the being unequally yoked with non-believers is, is in the essence where Naomi is with a lack of faith that, you know, no, don't come back with me because God's not able then to do something miraculous in your lives when we get there better for you to stay. And, and just that lack of trust. And we, we get outside the bounds of what God lays out for us because we, we ultimately, we don't trust that he can provide what we need or what we want. And, and, and God can absolutely provide what we need and what we want. He wants to provide what you need and what you want. And then part of what she's, she's saying, I want to just add to that, um, is, um, you know, she's telling these girls to, to count the cost. You know, there, there's a cost in, in, in following God. There's a cost in, in discipleship. And, and I, I wonder sometimes, you know, in the church, if, if we don't really give people, um, all the information maybe up front, you know, and maybe sometimes if, if, if we're not careful and I try to balance it, like I, I really try and I struggle with it. You know, like I, I struggle with Sunday's message, like Sunday's message was heavy. It was about hell and it was about, you know, two roads and it was, and it was a real serious message. Um, but I felt like I had to be honest with it and walk it and, 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 you know, be serious, the concern about, where you're going and knowing Jesus. But I, I left Sunday heavy, you know, and feeling like, man, that's such a heavy message. Like I want to balance it by come back and say, Jesus loves you, you know, and, and, and be encouraging because I do really want to be encouraging. And I believe the Bible's encouraging and God's encouraging and that we need to be encouraged and we need to hear those encouraging messages. But there, there definitely has to be a balance. And I think sometimes with the intent to really be loving and share the love of God, because that, that, that is such a main theme of the Bible. Jesus said the most important commandment was to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we want to, we want to focus and emphasize on those things. And how do you do that and, and not really water down? Because the truth is what I said on Sunday is really true. If you just read the words in red, if you just read Jesus's words, like it's, it's serious. A lot of times, like it's, it's harsh. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's in your face with some concepts, but if we don't present those concepts to people, I think we're doing them a disservice. And one of those concepts is what Jesus talked about. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 14, really quick, because I think this is what Naomi is telling these girls. And I want you guys to get it too. And maybe even if you're newer to Christ, that this is something that, that you really got to think about. And Jesus gives us this concept of counting the cost um, in Luke chapter 14. And I think that, that, you know, again, maybe if we tell people up front, then, then if you make a decision and you get into your walk and you find that it's hard or that it's difficult or that there's struggle or that it's not all you thought it was going to be or whatever, but you, you already knew that going in. So it doesn't rock you so much. Listen to what Jesus said about becoming disciples and counting the cost. It says in verse 25, it says, Now a great multitude went with him, and he turned and he said to them. So Jesus has this great multitude that's gathering. You know what Jesus did oftentimes when a crowd gathered? 
by the time Jesus was done, the crowd thinned out because he, he told them, he told them straight up. He told them the truth and they didn't always like it. You know, in John chapter five, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In John chapter six, the same crowd gathers with the attitude like dance, Jesus dance, like, you know, juggle and show us magic tricks. And in John chapter six, Jesus gives them a real serious message and doesn't feed them. And then it says this, the crowd went away mad. Can you imagine going to church and Jesus is the pastor? Jesus is the teacher and you didn't like the sermon. So you left mad because, you know, they, the, 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 the room was too warm or your seat was too hard or, you know, he, he didn't feed you. The food wasn't good. And they went away mad in John chapter six. And in verse 66 of John, you know, Jesus looked at his 12 disciples and he said, are you offended? Do you also want to leave? And then Peter, I love Peter's answer. It's just the truth. It's just the reality of life. Peter looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, where would we go? You have the words to eternal life. Like, what's our option? Yeah, we didn't like what you just said, but we're still not going anywhere because we got no other option. The other option is burning hell for all of eternity. Yeah, I think I'll stay. And, and, and so they stay and they say, where will we go? You have the words to eternal life. But, but here, same thing. Jesus draws this big crowd and, and rather than, you know, tell them, oh, I love you. He gives them a real serious talk that, that eventually in the long run is what they needed to hear. And what we need to hear, I think it says, it says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes. And his own life, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> talk about, talk about killing a crowd. Talk about an empty church. Man, if I just grew a big old crowd of people and I was so excited at all these people, I finally get to preach to them. And first thing I say to them is, if you don't hate your mom, if you don't hate your sister, yeah, if you don't hate yourself, you can't be my disciple. And I mean, this is like, Jesus ain't messing around. But I got to hate my father and mother. And then he says in verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. And then listen, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost. You ever heard the expression in church? If you're new to church, this is something that we say, count the cost. Have you counted the cost? Have you filled out our ministry application in most of you? Some of you, I think there's a line in there. there used to be anyways, if they haven't taken it out, somebody else is doing all that stuff now. But when I was doing it, there was a line in there that asked you if you had counted the cost. Is it still in there? Somebody know? Have you counted the cost? Because, because again, it's a concept that, you know, I think will help people in the long run. And, and, and that, you know, we're doing people a disservice again. You know, like people accuse us of sometimes, and maybe we can be guilty sometimes of um, what's called easy believism. You know, like you come, and, and it's true, Jesus come into your heart. You know, you're in Sunday school, and, you know, the Sunday school teacher says, do you want to ask Jesus in your heart? You know, and I do the same thing every week. I give people an opportunity to ask Jesus in their heart. And, and you, maybe you, you, you were moved by the spirit of God and you, you want to ask Jesus in your heart and you get saved. But, you know, but beyond that, if, if there's not this kind of discipleship training and reality that eventually people find stuff out later and then they're like, what is going on? But, you know, to, to, again, that we count the cost. So you have to count the cost. Um, and verse 29, he says, less after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish who sees it 
begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who has come against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. And so, again, the, the point is this. You, you want to be a, a disciple of Christ. You want to be a Christ follower. Well, there's a wisdom in you counting the cost. You know, and then Jesus uses the two examples. Who goes to build a house and doesn't first make sure they have enough materials and resources to finish the building, lest they, they look like a fool when they started and can't finish it because they didn't count the cost before they started? Or who goes to war and, and realizes halfway through the war that they just killed 10,000 men because they, they can't win this battle? Again, you'll be a fool because you didn't first count the cost going into it. Now, the cost of becoming a disciple is what we're trying to count, right? Okay, I want to be a Christ follower. What is that going to cost me? Well, Jesus already told you, you had to hate your mom, hate your brother, hate your sister, hate your wife. Yes, hate your own life. And then he's going to sum it up in verse 33. And he says, so likewise, also like what I said in verse, the earlier verses, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple so what is the cost of discipleship a l l that's it it's all it's all it's everything and 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 if we realize that coming in that that the cost of being a disciple of christ is everything so what is what what does everything entail it entails your old life your new life Jesus said that the Bible says that you're a new creation in Christ, that you you you, you become a, a new creation in Christ when you become the, when you become a Christian. All the old things have passed away and behold, I make all things new. And so in baptism, we're going to baptize here on Sunday. And that's the picture, right? Isn't the picture of water baptism? If you don't know, I'm telling you now, this is the picture of water baptism is you you go under the water of baptism and the old you stays under the water and is buried under the water. And then there's a separation that takes place, the old you staying under the water, the new you, the new creation in Christ is raised up out, raised up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit of God descends from heaven like a dove and, and, and fills your life. That's a picture of baptism. Is, is, and so that's the cost. That old you that stays under the water stays under the water, the new you that's a new creation in Christ. You know, I think my brother uses the example that, you know, he's, he's, he had an old car that he sold. And then he was digging around his junk drawer the other day and he found the set of keys to that old car. And, and he, he, you know, he's not going to go find who, who had his old car and drive his old car around. And, you know, I want to take the old car for a spin. It's, it's the old car. It's gone. It's, he sold it or whatever, you know. And, but, but we can do that with our life. We, we want to sometimes take the old life for a spin. And, and that old person that you reckon to be dead, you want to pick up again. You want to you you walk in those shoes again. You want to drive in that car again. And the idea is that, that those things are dead and the cost of discipleship is all. Amen? Is that clock really right? How are we going to get through uh, four chapters? And I haven't even started the first, the, the first part of the second one. All right. So the cost of discipleship. And then, um, so Ruth's given them that. And then it says in verse 14, they lifted up their voice and they wept again. And Oprah Winfrey kissed her mother-in-law and said, deuces. But Ruth clung to her. And she, and she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said one of the most poetic, wonderful things that's ever been written. Entreat me not to leave you or turn back. From following after you. For wherever you go I will go. 
And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so, do to, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. These, these words are often used in a, in a wedding, but sometimes folks don't realize it. And I think they're appropriate for weddings. But people don't understand the context of this, this vow was not between a man and a woman. It was actually between a woman and her mother-in-law. Mother-in-law, mother-in-law. You guys know that song? Some of you. There's a reason why they write songs about mother-in-laws, right? All right, moving right along. And, and it says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means what? Pleasant. But call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So she's she's blaming the Almighty for her bitter situation. And that is, in essence, the 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 bottom line of bitterness in your life. If you're bitter at your church, you're bitter at your Sunday school, you're bitter at your pastor, you're bitter at people that sit next to you, you're bitter at your work, you're bitter at your boss. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, your your bitterness is you're bitter at God because you understand whether consciously or subconsciously at your core that, that God is sovereign and God is in control of your life. And the reason, you know, that God doesn't want us to be bitter and, and allow bitterness is because ultimately our bitterness goes back to the Lord. Like we're, we're angry, we're bitter with God and that's not healthy. And, and here she's bitter with God. She's blaming God for the death of her sons and for the situation that she's in. And, and she says, the Lord almighty has afflicted me and she's bitter. And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, returned to the country of Moab. And now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So it's just kind of, um, you, you see this thing through this book where it's kind of like happenstance. So it happened, so it happened, which means coincidentally. But we know that there's no such word for coincidence in, in Hebrew. That everything is intended, that everything is ordained by God, and there are no coincidences that God orchestrates, that God has a purpose for such a time as this, is something you hear in Israel a lot. And so as you read through this, we're going to see all of these um, natural things that God is doing supernaturally. God is supernaturally, um, miraculously um, orchestrating things in, in your life, in my life, in Ruth's life. But he does it very naturally. And so she just, they happen to come back at the time of the barley harvest. They happen to end up in Boaz's field. They happen to, um, on and on. There was a relative, chapter 2, of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened... There's a, there it is. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. So was that an accident? Was that a coincidence? No, it was God's ordination, God's, God's sovereignty. Who was of the family of Elimelech, her deceased father-in-law? Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. How do you like that for your boss to show up and say, The Lord be with you. And your response is, The Lord bless you. Is that how you guys treat, talk to your bosses? Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose, whose young woman is that? So what he said was, wow, hey, who's that? So the servant 
who was in charge of the reapers, answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And, Ru- and, and she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has co- counted, or excuse me, continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young man not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink water what the young men have drawn. Now, um, in, in essence here, in the story of the Redeemer, Boaz plays the role of the Redeemer in our story. Now, in our life, who plays the picture of who, who's the real Redeemer? Is Jesus. So in essence, Boaz is a type of Jesus here um, as the Redeemer. And you'll see some of the, the things that you find in every verse in the Old Testament, these different idioms. And here he's telling her about drinking water and, the, the, you know, the, the guys are going to provide for her. And Jesus said, you know, he who thirsts, come to me and I will give you living water. And again, without walking through every one of them, you'll see these these things where. The other thing we're going to find out here very quickly is that Boaz um, falls in love with Ruth. And that, that Jesus is absolutely in love with the church and, and with you and I. And it says, um, verse number 10, she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me that all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have have come now to a people whom you did not know before. And so basically Boaz is saying that she's a woman of good reputation. And, um, and then in verse 12, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to, for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. And so she sat beside the reapers and she passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. The Lord does that for you. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned, so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? You scored. And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. The Lord Jesus took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law in whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Wow, really? Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relative of ours. He is one of our close relatives. In other words, what she's saying is he is a redeemer. or He has the ability um, to be a kinsman redeemer for us. And Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay close to the young men and they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women and the people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young woman of Boaz 
to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. And then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? And Boaz, whose young women were with you, is he not our relative or a redeemer? Or doesn't he have the power to redeem us? In fact, he is, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint, your, anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So Naomi tells her to, um, to dress up, to look nice, put on makeup, comb her hair, brush her teeth. You know, that, that, that there's nothing wrong with the women looking nice and you know, um, some people got that twisted and they take verses in the Bible out of context that, you know, we have to be homely looking in order to be Christian. And the, the, the standard that the New Testament lays out is modesty and that women are supposed to be modest, but that, you know, it's okay to be um, done up or pretty or present yourself pretty for your husband. And then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So there, there's nothing um, um, inappropriate or funky going on here in this story. It's it's all very appropriate and, and very, you know, it's not, again, it's not scantless or dirty what she's doing. She's not laying with him. She's coming and, and, and as he falls asleep, she's laying at his feet. She's going to uncover his feet. And the practical thing was if he went to bed and fell asleep and she uncovered his feet, what's going to happen when the wind starts blowing and his feet get cold? Practically. He's going to wake up. He's going to wake up and he's going to realize she's there. So she uncovers his feet and waits for the cold air to do its job. And then he wakes up because his feet are cold to recover his feet up and he sees her there. And at verse eight happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned him, turned himself. And there was a woman lying at his feet. And she and he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. So basically in verse number nine, she's proposing to him like this is um, by all means. Everybody at this point understands he understands she understands what's being said here. She's telling him that 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 she's offering herself to him as a wife so that he you know, if he wants to become and perform the duty of a kinsman redeemer. And so um, here we have a, a occasion where the woman proposes to the man. I can remember when Lydia proposed to me. Just kidding. She didn't propose to me. I proposed to her. Her dad made me do it. And so she she proposes in verse number nine, um, you know, and then in verse 10, it says, and then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. So um, obviously, I think um, Boaz was um, a little older than Ruth and, you know, and there was young men that were probably a little more attractive than he was and a little more sporty and. She had opportunity to to seek after these men. And, you know, when when she proposes to him, he didn't need to, you know, he, he was already in love with her. He was already he already loved her. He already he already was, you know, hoping that he couldn't force it. But he gave her opportunity and she chose him over the young men. And so he's blessed by that. And he says in verse 11, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. 
So again, he understood the request, right? So he said, I'll do for you. All she said to him was perform the duty of a close relative. And he says, yes, I'll do all that you request because they were speaking the same language. For all people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. And so again, this reminder that, um, you know, that she has a good reputation, that she's a woman of honor and, and she's a virtuous woman. And he says, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Uh-oh. Stay this night. And in the morning, it shall be that it, that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So um, verse 13, he tells her to stay the night. And so again, this story is PG, it's clean. Um, nowhere in the Hebrew, you know, for us, stay the night means something else. You know, the Bible uses the term to know to lie with, but stay the night is, is different. She laid at his feet. Everything again is PG, clean in this story. It's honorable. And it says, so she lay at his feet until morning and she rose before one could recognize another. And then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is, that is on you and hold it. And when, when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? And she said, All that man has done for her. And, and then she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So Jesus will not rest until he's taken the bride, until he's taken you and I. And then in chapter 4, so Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, Sit down here. So they sat. So the, the, ten, the ten people was the jury, the quorum. They needed a quorum to for law, for Jewish law. So he gets the 10 witnesses. He gets this other guy and he's going to present him the, the case. Um, and then he said to the close relative, then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So this guy was also a, a, a kinsman redeemer. He was nearer than, than Boaz and he had first option to it. And and I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am next after you. And he said, the guy said, I will redeem it. How do you think Boaz was feeling right about now? You notice he didn't mention uh, old, uh, old Ruth yet, right? Like he didn't say anything about Ruth. He didn't mention Ruth in the story. He just, I think he's a little nervous here, but I think he's playing his cards right. And he knew how the business deal was going to go down. And so he just asked, because if he didn't need to mention her, if the guy wasn't interested, but the guy was interested and he says, okay, I'll take it. That's my duty. Uh, I'll redeem it. Um, and so the, the, the redeemer had to, um, first of all, he had to be worthy. He had to be a, a kin. He, he also had to have the finances and the ability to buy it and redeem it. And this guy qualified for all those things. And he said, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz said, oh, okay, great. But one, one more thing you might want to know first. He said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, 
You must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So that's what we read in Deuteronomy, um, was that, that, that the law that, that he, they would have to take Ruth as a bride. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. I can't add this woman. My wife's not going to go for it. I have to add her and her kids to our, our inheritance. And you know, another family tree, another line, and that's going to create all kinds of problems. No, thank you. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So I'm sure Boaz was super excited now. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the confirmation in Israel. So kind of strange how they made a business deal. They didn't shake hands. They didn't. They, they took off their shoes and handed them to each other. So you see a guy walking around with one waracha, you knew that he, uh, he just made a business deal. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witness this day that I may that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, and he had the ten men of the council there who also would testify, and and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the house of Naomi, moreover Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are a witness this day, and all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, and two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Epaphrata and be famous in Bethlehem. Well, that's all prophecy because that's all going to come true. They're famous to this day. And, and and from their line, they would have had no way of knowing it, that, that the Messiah of Israel would come and be born in that same exact area in Bethlehem of Epaphrata. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, and Tamar is the bore to Judah. That's the story we started again with in, in Genesis 38. Tamar played the harlot because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. And Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And, and when he went into her, now that's a term, um, a biblical term for intimacy. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not le- left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, "There, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And Obed, he is the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron Ram, Ram Ammon. Amininadab, Amininadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon Boaz, Boaz Obed, Obed Jesse, Jesse David, amen, and from the line of Jesse comes Messiah. Now, turn with me, with me if you will, really quick to Revelation chapter 5. So, um, again, the theme of, of Jesus as our Redeemer is, is really all through Scripture. It's one of the names of titles of Jesus, right? Redeemer, our Redeemer. 
But there's a scene in Revelation chapter 5 that kind of wraps up the, the idea of Jesus as our kinsman redeemer or as our redeemer. And it says, and I saw in Revelation chapter 5, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So the scroll um, is basically the, the title deed to planet earth. So God, God owned the title to the planet earth. And, and, and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Gethsemane, they forfeited that title deed to earth to Satan. And, you know, in, in essence, the Lord, right, he's the God of this world. But, um, you know, Satan technically is also called, as the Bible calls him that, it's one of the titles of Satan that he's the God, little g, of this world. And so Satan has dominion. And again, what I shared out many times is that when, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus didn't say, you don't have all the kingdoms of the world, so how can you offer them to me? Because Satan did and does have the kingdoms of the world. And they were his to offer because he's the God of this world. Um, because um, sin and death entered the world at the fall of Adam and Eve. That was the cost. And so we, we go through from that part of human history all the way to the end of human history. And we get to Revelation 5 and we see this scene in heaven and there's a scroll. And, and the scroll is the title deed to earth that, 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 that Satan owns, that God wants to redeem back, take back from Satan. But the problem is there's nobody on earth, in earth, under earth, above earth, in heaven, on the earth, that's able to open the scroll and that's worthy to loose the seals and to redeem or be the redeemer of this of the planet um, of this title deed to earth. So John, the, the revelator who's writing here, it says that he began to weep bitterly because nobody was worthy to redeem the earth back to God. And it says, but one of the elders said to me in verse five, do not weep, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. That's you and I. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God. Amen. And we shall. That's why I have the right to baptize folks on Sunday night in case any of you guys are wondering. And we shall reign on the earth. And so um, we have this this scene of redemption in Revelation chapter five, where Jesus is our great redeemer, the lamb who was slain, who is worthy to loose the scrolls and, and, and open the seals. Um, amen. Amen. Let's stand.